0: Hello there and welcome to today's episode of the Not Just a Lawyer podcast. I'm Sarah Avery of Sarah Avery Legal Practice and today I'll be talking to you about the directions that get given to juries in serious criminal matters and also the directions that judges need to give themselves during these matters. And I'm using as a case study a matter that I came across while researching one of my own matters. And it's the matter of the Queen and Sideros number five. It was before the ACT Supreme Court. The judge was Justice Mossop. And the citation, if you'd like to look it up yourself, is 2020 ACT SC 354. The decision I'm looking at is number five. It was given on the 23rd of December 2020. I'm recording this podcast on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Quite often, I'd give you some of the interesting details from a particular matter, but with this one, because it concerns outlaw motorcycle gangs, and I don't particularly want to give people airtime in that regard, I'll just cut to the chase. Now, the accused in this matter faced seven different charges. And what I'll be focusing on is not what those charges are, but instead the directions that the judge in this case had to give to himself because he was hearing it as a judge alone matter. Now, let me talk a little bit about that first of all, because that is an unusual thing for this type of matter in the Australian Capital Territory. So as a result of amendments to the Supreme Court Act for the duration of the COVID-19 emergency period, accused people were able to elect for a trial by judge alone in matters where they would otherwise need to have a trial by jury. So one of these charges here was attempted murder. It's usually excluded from an accused person's capacity to elect for a judge alone trial. That means it usually needs to be heard by a jury, but because of the COVID emergency period, the accused in this matter was able to elect just for a judge to hear it and when a judge hears a matter, they need to set out the principles of law that they apply and the findings of fact that they make. And they're also obliged to take into account any warning or direction to be given or any comment to be made that would have been made to a jury in the proceedings had it been tried before a jury. And Justice Mossop sets that out really clearly in his judgment. So I thought I would go through the general principles that he sets out about the warnings that he's giving himself that he would have given to a jury. Now these won't cover every jury warning or direction that would come up in every single matter just for this particular matter but there's so many and it's really interesting so I thought I'd take you through them today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with the general principles that Justice Mossop set out for himself. And these are really good general principles for you to know, because they're the sorts of things that really do occur in every single matter. So these are his paragraphs 8 to 17. And I'll try and make it clear when it's me quoting from his judgment and I'll try and make it really clear if I'm inserting my own commentary or explanations for you. So here we go. He says, In this part of my reasons, I set out the general directions and warnings that I would have given to a jury. The elements of the offences and my findings in relation to them are set out later in these reasons. The Crown bears the onus or burden of proving the guilt of the accused. The Crown has asserted that the accused Has committed criminal offences, therefore the Crown must prove that the accused committed those offences. The accused does not have to prove that he did not commit those offences. The level or standard of proof required in a criminal trial is proof beyond reasonable doubt. The accused cannot be found to be guilty of the offences unless the evidence, which I accept, satisfies me beyond reasonable doubt of his guilt. So I'll just pause there to explain what his honour is pointing out there is, number one, he needs to accept the Crown's evidence, and number two, he needs to be satisfied by the Crown beyond reasonable doubt. There could be things in the Crown's case that he accepts are facts, but they still might not rise to the high enough level. So yeah, that's my commentary, obviously. Justice Mossop goes on. The accused is presumed by law to be innocent of the offences with which he is charged, Unless and until the evidence which I accept satisfies me beyond reasonable doubt of his guilt. If the evidence which I accept satisfies me beyond reasonable doubt of his guilt, then he loses the presumption of innocence and the appropriate verdict is guilty. If however the evidence which I accept fails to satisfy me beyond reasonable doubt of his guilt, then he remains presumed to be innocent and the appropriate verdict is not guilty. Now, let's look at what Justice Mossop says about the kind of mind he has to bring to the matter. He says, As I am the judge of the facts, as well as the judge of the law, I must bring an open and unbiased mind to evidentiary material. I must view that material coldly, clinically and dispassionately and I must not let emotion enter into the decision-making process because both the Crown and the accused are entitled to my verdict free of partiality or prejudice, favour or ill will. So I'll just pause there. You'll note that he said he is the judge of the law as well as the judge of the facts. When there's a jury, The jury is the judge of the facts, and the judge presiding over the matter is the judge of the law. All right, what that actually means in practicality is usually in a jury trial, it's the jurors who are making decisions about whether the witnesses are reliable, whether they accept the Crown case, whether they accept all the evidence. So that means they're the judge of the facts. All right, let's go on. Justice Mossop says, I must determine whether each of the witnesses is a reliable witness, that is, whether the witness has an accurate memory of the events about which the witness has given evidence, and whether the witness is truthfully conveying that recollection to the court. I must determine the relevant facts according to the evidentiary material, considered logically and rationally, without acting capriciously or irrationally. So I think that would usually go without saying but that's the kind of thing that needs to be mentioned to a jury and here the judge is telling himself he needs to be logical and rational. He can't be capricious or irrational when he looks at the evidence and determines what the facts actually are. He further says, I may use my common sense, my individual experience and wisdom in assessing the evidence given by the witnesses. I am not required by any rule of law, logic, or common sense to accept a witness wholly or reject a witness wholly. I can accept everything that a witness has said if I consider all of it worthy of acceptance. I can reject everything that a witness has said if I consider none of it worthy of acceptance. I can accept that part of what a witness said I consider worthy of acceptance and reject the rest of what that witness said as I consider it unworthy of acceptance. I must determine the weight to be given to those parts of the evidence which I accept. Now, this is me commenting, that all sounds a bit Shakespearean, but basically what he's saying and the direction he would give a jury, you can accept the evidence of a witness only in part. You can reject the rest of it. The weight you give to the stuff you accept that is determined by you just in practicality we might have had experience with someone who's telling us something and we think oh i i think you're telling the truth about part of that but not all of it and so you know in our own lives we don't go well i don't think you're telling the truth at all because you lied about one part of it i still think you're telling the truth about that other part And that's the sort of thing that a jury is allowed to determine. And in this case, the judge was telling himself he's allowed to think like that too. And finally, in a criminal trial, the Crown must prove the essential elements of the charge beyond reasonable doubt. The Crown does not have to prove everything about which evidence has been given beyond reasonable doubt. So an example of that, part of the story of an offence might be a robbery was committed at an ice cream shop. The key elements of that offence were that there was a robbery. The details of the paint on the walls in the ice cream shop or the number of customers who were in there at the time, perhaps witnesses get those details wrong. Perhaps the Crown's got a theory of what that was about, but the theory of those peripheral details is wrong. Now, the judge is saying to himself, The Crown only has to prove the essential elements of the charge beyond reasonable doubt. The other stuff that aren't the essential elements do not have to be proved beyond reasonable doubt. Now, this is also interesting. Here, the judge starts to talk about audiovisual evidence and he gives himself a direction there. In this trial, evidence was given by audiovisual link and with a support person present. That is a usual practice in the ACT. I must not draw any adverse inference against the accused, and the evidence should not be given any greater or lesser weight because the evidence was given in that way. So, what he's saying there, someone's, it seems, afraid to give evidence in court in front of the accused. Instead, they've done it by audio visual link, which means they're elsewhere, coming in by video, and they have a support person. And the judge is saying to himself he can't draw any adverse inference against the accused. So he can't think, because this person seems afraid of the accused and doesn't want to give evidence in court, I'm, he must be a terrible guy. He also says the evidence shouldn't be given any greater or lesser weight because it was given in that way. So he's saying to himself... And normally would be saying to a jury, now listen, just because this person is giving evidence outside of the courtroom, it doesn't mean that you have to believe them more. And it doesn't mean that you should believe them less. Now, you've all heard me talk before about the presumption of innocence and the right to silence, which means that an accused person doesn't have to say anything. They don't have to bring any evidence in their own case at all. That is the defense case. Just to clarify that, what happens in court is the prosecution brings their case, and then after that case is closed, the defense has an opportunity to bring its own evidence. Sometimes that involves an accused person giving evidence. Sometimes it involves witnesses giving evidence for an accused person. Sometimes it involves documents, all the sorts of things that you might see in a case. But The defence does not have to do that. They can simply assert after the close of the prosecution case that the prosecution hasn't made out the case, that they have not proved the elements of the offence beyond a reasonable doubt. So next, Justice Mossop talks about evidence from the accused. He gives himself this direction. In this case, the accused did not give evidence on oath or affirmation. He was not obliged to do so. The onus at all times lies upon the crown. At all times, the burden lies upon the crown to prove each element of each offence beyond reasonable doubt. His owner then talks about the fact that there are separate charges against the accused. He says, Each of the charges against the accused must be considered separately there may be a logical reason for a verdict of guilty or not guilty on one or more of the charges and a different verdict on other charges. If I am not satisfied beyond reasonable doubt in relation to one of the charges as a result of my assessment of the evidence of a particular witness, I must consider what effect, if any, the doubts that I have about the evidence on that charge has in relation to the other charges.' So wonder his honour is saying there, he has to look at each charge separately. He has to look at the evidence of witnesses. If he rejects that evidence, he has to think about whether that has any impact on whether he can be satisfied in relation to whether the Crown's proved the other charges. His honour then goes to talk about one of my favourite things in criminal law, a circumstantial case. It's just a really interesting area to me. And he says... The Crown's case against the accused is largely circumstantial, except for certain admissions relied upon by the Crown, there is no direct evidence that the accused was the person involved in the commission of these offences and identified by the Crown as offender too. The Crown must prove that, in light of all the circumstances established by the evidence, there is no explanation reasonably available on the evidence other than the guilt of the accused. This requires that an alternative explanation rest upon something more than mere conjecture. I must look at the evidence holistically rather than adopting a piecemeal approach. Let me explain that so that it makes sense to people who haven't read this type of law or heard about it before. Basically, if you're an accused person, the Crown needs to prove that there is no reasonable hypothesis consistent with innocence. Now, what his honour was telling himself is that the alternative explanation, so that reasonable hypothesis, it needs to rest upon something more than mere conjecture. In a practical sense, say I were accused of robbery and I didn't bring any evidence at all. If I said, oh, well, um, the police didn't, in submissions, I should say, my barrister might say something like, because I obviously am not saying anything, I'm not giving evidence. Just needed to clarify that for you. Say my barrister in closing submissions were saying something like, well, the police didn't investigate every other known robber in Canberra. So, you know, could have been one of them. That would be an explanation that's based on mere conjecture. And the judge says to himself, I must look at the evidence holistically rather than adopting a piecemeal approach. Means he has to look at the entire set of evidence and the entire case rather than just picking at little pieces of it. He can pick at little pieces of it. Sometimes little pieces, if they're not established, mean the whole thing can't be established. But he will talk a little bit more about that later. uh, And I'll point it out when we get to that. His Honour then talks about complaint evidence and what I'm going to do is just paraphrase it. The complainant in this matter, that is the person who is the victim, and I say that they are because spoiler, the accused person was found guilty of most of these offences. The complainant complained to the police about what had happened and he complained on a few occasions. Now, the judge tells himself what the effect of a complaint might be. He says, I can use evidence of what was said in the complaint as some evidence that the incident did occur as the complainant says. He says further, the law says that I may, because of the circumstances in which the complaint was made, be entitled to use what was said in that complaint as some evidence of the truth of what the complainant alleged against a person. I must consider whether I draw that conclusion in this particular case and so treat the complaint as evidence of the alleged incident by the complainant. If I do use it as some evidence of the incident, that is the subject of the relevant count, then I must determine what weight to give it. Second, whether I do use the evidence of complaint in that way or not. The fact that the complainant raised the allegation against the accused at the time and in the manner that he did may lead me to accept the evidence he gave. In other words, it makes his evidence more believable than if he had not raised the allegation as he did. If I use the evidence in that way, I must determine what weight the evidence should be given. I must, however, bear in mind that the fact that a person says something on more than one occasion does not mean that what is said is necessarily true or accurate. A false or inaccurate statement does not become more reliable just because it is repeated on one or more occasions. So that's quite interesting. Because I don't want to get into the precise specifics of this case, I will paraphrase a little bit what his honour has said to himself about expert evidence. So he says, an expert witness is a person who has specialised knowledge based on that person's training, study or experience. A witness with such specialised knowledge may express an opinion on matters within his or her particular area of expertise. The value of any expert opinion is dependent on A, the reliability and accuracy of the material which the expert used to reach his or her opinion, and B, the degree to which the expert analysed the material upon which the opinion was based, and the skill and experience brought to bear in formulating the opinion given. He further says, Experts can differ in the level and degree of their experience, training and study, Yet each can still be an expert qualified to give an opinion where that opinion is based on that witness's specialised knowledge. I'm skipping a bit particular to this case, And his honour says, I must consider the extent to which the opinions expressed by the various experts may be applied in the particular circumstances of this case. I am not obliged to act upon the expert evidence, particularly if the facts upon which the expert's opinion is based do not accord with the facts as I find them to be. I am also, to a degree, entitled to take into account my common sense and my own experiences if they are relevant. To the issue upon which the expert evidence relates. His Honour says that there was no real challenge to the reliability of the expert opinions expressed. Therefore, if I am to reject that evidence, then there must be some good reason for doing so. I must, however, carefully bear in mind any limitations on the scope of their opinions relevant to the issues that I have to decide and the evidence that was elicited from them in cross-examination. So let me explain that a little bit to you. You might be wondering how the facts that the experts are using could be different to the facts that his honour finds. So as a matter of practicality, what happens is experts are briefed by the lawyers for either the Crown usually known as the prosecutors or the lawyers for the defence. And they'll be asked to make certain assumptions. And for the Crown, those assumptions are usually the things that are alleged against the accused. So please assume that on this day, Sarah broke into the ice cream shop and did these following things. And the experts might be giving opinions about say for example the ability of people in the shop to have seen certain details so maybe they're like eyesight experts let's just say and well let's say that the expert has been asked to assume something that we later find out is actually not correct so perhaps they were given an incorrect floor plan of the venue and they've given their evidence based on that. But later in the trial, it comes out, oops, actually, uh, that was our Gungalan store and uh, we're we're looking at the layout for the Conan one, which is slightly different. So the opinion that they've given is of lesser weight because the facts that they relied upon in giving it are not the facts that are found by the court. That's just one very, very simple explanation of how that could occur. So... The next factor that his honour had to tell himself about was the use of a prison informer. So here we go. This is what he says to himself. And you might hear some cats running around, so please ignore them, even though they are super cute. He says, I am, that was not the judge, by the way. I, I say the cats are super cute. Justice Mossop doesn't know anything about my cats. Okay, he says, I am required to give a direction about the reliability of a witness, AB evidence, because he is a prison informer. The experience of courts over the years has demonstrated that the evidence of such witnesses is potentially unreliable. This could be for a variety of reasons. For example, the witness is likely to be of bad character. The evidence is easily concocted. The witness is likely to have been motivated to concoct such evidence. And there is usually no way an accused can meet such evidence except by his own denial. Because of this, it is necessary to scrutinise the evidence of the witness in question with great care. In this case, the witness in question received several benefits for giving evidence against the accused. First, the police did not oppose a bail application he made and bail was granted. Second, he was provided with evidence of the assistance given to police, which was taken into account on his sentence. Now, his honour is recognising that people who are in prison, who are informers, often have other motivations for giving the evidence that they do, and his honour has talked about some of the benefits that this witness obtained. Now, that is not to say, as a rule, that informant evidence is always unreliable, but courts have to treat it with great scrutiny. Now, I'll give you a bit of a spoiler. In this matter, his honour thought that the prison informer was giving truthful evidence or at least being truthful to the best of his ability or at least trying to be as truthful as he could but despite that he didn't detect any malice or attempt to mislead the court but despite that he thought he could not give the evidence of that prison informer any weight whatsoever so it was like that evidence didn't exist he gave it simply no weight it did not add at all to the crown case against the accused. The next factor that his honour talked to himself about, if we could put it that way, in his judgement, was good character and he said, in this case there was evidence of the accused's good character. The accused adduced evidence that he has no previous convictions for offences of violence or dishonesty. I am entitled to take this evidence into account on the question of whether the Crown has proved the guilt of the accused beyond reasonable doubt. I am also entitled to rely on this evidence... To support the credibility of the accused, including his denials of involvement to police. Now, let me just talk about this for a second or two. The accused didn't give evidence on oath or affirmation in the matter. That means he didn't get in the witness box and give evidence, but he obviously had some evidence being put forward in the defence case. That would be evidence of the lack of his. Previous convictions for offences of violence or dishonesty. And it also appears that he would have been interviewed by police and denied to them being involved. And so the court is saying, I'm entitled to look at his lack of dishonesty and offences of violence when I consider his denials to police. I might think, well, that makes his denials more credible, or I might think it doesn't. That's a matter for the judge as the trier of fact. And usually that would be a matter for the jury, who is usually the trier of fact. One of the more unique things about this judgment is that it lets you behind the scenes into a criminal matter. Usually when a jury makes findings... We never know the basis of their factual findings. We never know what factual findings they actually made. We just know what the verdict is. But because the judge has to set out in detail all of the factual findings he made, this case is a really good opportunity if you haven't had the chance to sit in court and see a whole trial, and most of us haven't because they take a long time. You can actually read through this and see the entirety of the case against the accused and then the sorts of things that he put forward in support of his own defence case. His honour actually goes through each of the witnesses, and so you can read it and have a flavour for what they said. He talks about the other types of evidence that were put forward, so you can read the matter and understand, oh, okay, we saw some CCTV, and this is what it showed – Short of having access to the prosecution brief of evidence as either a prosecutor or a defence lawyer, this case is going to be one of the closest ways that you can see how a criminal trial runs and how all of the allegations fit together to form a case against an accused person. Now, I mentioned also that I would come back to my favourite topic of the circumstantial case, and so what his honour mentions later on in the judgement is that one of the key factors, one of the key issues that he needs to determine is the identity of the offender. So we know who is accused of committing the crimes, but a lot of the material against the accused is CCTV footage where it is alleged that the accused is one of the offenders but the court can't simply presume that he is. The court needs to be satisfied of that. And there are a lot of things that go towards that. It's not just looking at the footage. There are a whole lot of other circumstances that the court looks at to determine whether he is actually that person who did those things. His Honour describes the case As to the identity of the offender as a circumstantial case. So what that tells us is that simply looking at the CCTV footage in this case doesn't make it clear who the offender is, whether that's because of a lack of very clear footage or perhaps disguises or perhaps darkness or any number of factors. It could be that the accused person was partially captured on the footage but not the face. I won't go into too much detail about this particular matter but those are the kinds of things that might make CCTV footage not a good way to prove someone's identity. It might be part of the case, but there might be more needed. So in this particular matter, they were looking at the accused's enthusiasm to be part of a certain um, outlaw motorcycle gang and whether he might be doing things to bolster his ability to be accepted. And so his honour said, the circumstantial case is a strands in a cable case. What that means is that The circumstantial case about identity is based on a confluence of factors. So a bunch of things swirling together that if you take them all together, if you think all of them are true and then you mix them all together, you say, okay, these are like strands in a cable. These things wound around each other make this cable strong. It makes it strong enough for me to accept beyond reasonable doubt that the identity of offender number two is one and the same as the identity of the accused person in this case. The other type of circumstantial case that could be there is links in a chain, which means that if one piece of circumstantial evidence cannot be proved beyond reasonable doubt, the next logical step in that link in the chain doesn't follow. It breaks apart I can't think of a great example of that off the top of my head, but you might be able to think of one. So let me recommend if you're interested in just getting a flavour for how a criminal matter might run, and if you're not able to get there, to watch one, and face it most of us aren't we've got jobs lives other responsibilities this case is a pretty good one to have a look not only at the types of directions a judge gives a jury in a matter and in this case had to give himself but it's also a really great example of what the what the type of crown case is what type of evidence is brought against an accused person and how the matter runs so the case again is the Queen and Sideros Number 5, 2020 ACTSC 354. If you're interested in criminal law, have a read of it. It's a really long read. I'm a very fast reader and it took me a couple of hours to get through it. There are, oh gosh, over 600 paragraphs. Um, but it's really interesting And I don't think you'll think it's a waste of time. Sometimes criminal matters are really interesting reads. Yes, it is terrible that someone has to have suffered um, and faced injury in relation to these matters. But if you are curious about criminal law and you want to know more, it is helpful to read the matters that are more interesting because it helps you continue to pay attention and learn things that are there for learning. So Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Not Just a Lawyer podcast. I'm Sarah Avery of Sarah Avery Legal Practice. I hope you have found this informative and if you need to talk criminal law with a lawyer, you are very welcome to contact me and if I'm not the right person to give you a hand, I will be able to recommend someone who can. So thanks again for listening. I hope you found it as interesting to listen to as I found reading this case.